And it's not only a pleasure and privilege to welcome you to this Resurrection Sunday worship gathering and to witness this physical portrait of the, really the, the reason for the celebration of this holiday, but it's also a pleasure and a privilege to invite you now to open God's Word. What a gift that is to us. See, these are the, in this book are the words of life, so please turn, if you would, in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul has been addressing people who believe that they are Christians, but are not. And he will be addressing those who are anxious that they may not be Christians, but they are. <laughs> these, are these are typical garden variety pastoral concerns. We we encounter these things week in and week out. There are always those who are presumptuous about their relationship with God, and there are those who are insecure about their relationship with God. And my, my purpose in this sermon is to clarify, I believe, from God's word to the Romans, the nature and the assurance of saving faith. So I want to invite you, turn to Romans 4, and we're going to give our attention to God's voice expressed I can't hear you oh of course children 15 months those of you that can still understand me uh, you 15 month olds uh, through preschool you are dismissed DMAS Road Kids right now All right, they're all hurrying off. Okay. Maybe they got the memo before I did. All right. So as an expression of regard and reverence and respect for the Word of God, let's stand together if you're able. And I want you to follow along as I read these verses. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become 
the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. So mindful today, Lord, by the by the resurrection of Jesus, by the power that raised Jesus, that flesh and blood is is of no help regarding anything that has to do with spirituality and being made right with God. And so we turn away from any self-reliance, any self-exaltation, any self-righteousness, any self-sufficiency. And we look to you, O God, and to you alone for all that we need to be made right with you and to walk in a manner worthy of you, to be counted as righteous legally and to know the, the spiritual life, the life that raised Jesus from the dead animating through us, as we would walk with you. We, we thank you, Lord, that you promise these things freely to all who would trust you. And so, we look to you for these gifts, this grace, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. David Martin Lloyd-Jones um, a name probably not familiar to very many of you, but, but he was one of the most dynamic and influential preachers of the 20th century. And I, and I mention him because he, he's famous for a, a very simple conversation starter. He would just ask people, are you a Christian? And those he asked would very frequently reply, well, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a Christian. And if they said that, he knew right away that they did not understand the first principle of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is a, as I said earlier, a status and a union. It's a legal status and a spiritual union. 
being a Christian is not some reward that you get on the basis of your achievements. Being a Christian is like being adopted or being married. Either you are or you are not. It's not about trying to be. You are either a Christian or you are not a Christian. And for much of the the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, he shows the great and universal need that we all have for a Savior. The wrath of God is revealed today. It's clearly on display everywhere you turn against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And God's wrath is being displayed on account of the reality that all All of us have in some way suppressed the truth about God revealed in this book and have explicitly contradicted the Word of God in this book. And for this reason, God has given up humankind to its lusts and to its dishonorable passions and to a debased way of thinking. And so Paul has painted this... (laughs) It's a a very appalling portrait of the sinful brokenness of the world. And it's crucial, however, to behold. For apart from a crystal clear awareness of how desperately we need Jesus the Christ, we will never go to Jesus the Christ. And then Paul, with his unique, intense passion, unpacks the doctrine of the sinner's justification in relation to, to God by grace alone, through faith alone. And what's so astonishing uh, about this doctrine and, and, and how productive this doctrine is, is how it engenders humility. It just levels all humanity to the same plane. And it molds a unity amidst diversity. That, again, is precisely what our world needs to behold. And then now in chapter 4, Paul moves on to the next logical question. If sinners are justified, that is, if they are counted as righteous by grace alone through faith alone, then what is this faith? How are we to understand this faith by which one is justified? What does it even mean? And if such faith is so instrumental in our salvation, then how can we be certain that we possess it? See how huge this is? Everything hangs on this. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He unpacks it. And so this is my outline for today. I I have four observations here. One, the purpose or the goal of faith. We need to answer the why question, right? Why does God see fit to make faith the instrumental cause of our salvation? Second, the nature or substance of faith. What does faith even mean? Three, the object or the focal point of our faith. What is it that we are believing? In what are we trusting? And then fourthly, the assurance of faith. In other words, how can we be certain that God can be trusted? What guarantee do we have that God will actually fulfill all that he has promised? So, here we go. Number one, the purpose of faith. Why is it that God has seen fit to make faith the 
what I would call the instrumental cause of our salvation. And I say instrumental cause of our salvation because faith in and of itself is not what saves. The ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation is grace and grace alone. And Paul affirms this in Romans 4 verses 15 and 16 where he says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that, and so now we have... Now we have the purpose coming, right? In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, that is, Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. So the the reason that God sees fit to make faith the instrumental cause of our salvation rather than what we contribute through our rather limited and actually useless attempts to make ourselves right with God through good works. It's because faith uniquely, distinctly amplifies God's grace. Faith shows that we are depending on God's ability. We're depending on what God does rather than depending on our ability and what we do. And this is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. What's the worst sin that you can think of? Is Is it murder? Is murder the worst sin? Is it spouse abuse? What about child abuse? Is that the worst sin that you can think of? How about God abuse? Think about that. At the heart of every sin, whether it's grumbling and ingratitude to hatred and killing, or whether it's everything from envy and gossip to adultery and thievery, at the very heart of every sin is an assault on God's character. I don't trust you. I don't trust you to provide the best life. I don't think you know what I want, what I need most. I think I know better than you what the best life is and when to have it. I I reject your love. I reject your wisdom. I reject your counsel. I reject your time frame. I reject you as the all-wise, all-providing Father. I choose myself as the authority in this relationship. I will do it my way. What's what's the, the hardest and most hurtful thing that you could say to someone? I don't trust you. For in saying that, There endeth the relationship. 
When trust is gone, the relationship is gone. And loved ones, this is at the very bottom. This is what is underneath every sin. God, I do not trust you. And so, why then does God make entrusting ourselves to Him, relying on Him, the condition then for restoring our relationship with Him? It's because distrust is at the heart of the breach of our relationship with Him. And this distrust, which is it's devastating in any human relationship, it is infinitely more devastating in relation to God on account of the infinite worthiness of God to be treated otherwise. His character is infinitely impeccable. And to say, I don't trust you, is an infinite offense. So the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation is the grace of God. And the reason for that is obvious. Paul's clearly proven that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. Flesh and blood is of no help whatsoever. Our inability is absolute. We are blind to the glory of God. We are enslaved to disobedience. We are as good as dead when it comes to responding freely and appropriately to all that God is for us. And in light of this inability, the only thing our feeble attempts at works of the law accomplishes is the confirmation of our guilt and the proof that we are helpless to save ourselves. And that's why Paul says, all that the law does is bring wrath. It doesn't help in any way. So the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation is the grace of God, but the instrumental cause of our salvation is faith in God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, And it is for a purpose. It's for a purpose. And that purpose is the glory and honor of God alone. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So, you see, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, places all the spotlight on the glory of God alone. And this is what's, this is the right. This is, this is what's most right. And it's right where the spotlight needs to be. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The rightness of faith. The rightness or righteousness of faith as the instrumental cause of our salvation is that it restores the rightness of order. Grace is what God supplies. Faith magnifies God as the giver. Grace is what God does. Faith magnifies God as the worker. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone restores and fulfills God's purpose to be honored and glorified above all. We get all of God, we get all that God supplies, and God gets all the glory. And that, loved ones, is the purpose of faith. Now, what is this faith? (laughs) 
What is this faith through which God's unsurpassed greatness is magnified? What is the nature of faith? Well, this is an area where I think that we can very subtly, easily get tripped up in our notion regarding the nature of faith. We can, we can mistake intensity of feeling for substance. In other words, it's not unusual when one's feeling of desire, feeling of love for God, feeling of joyful confidence in God is low or absent and then to conclude that we have no faith at all. It's a subtle shift, but it can have significant consequences. Listen to verses 20 and 21. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And, and, and now, listen, this, this is Paul's definition of faith right here. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So, so the nature of faith, the kind of faith that magnifies the greatness of God, the glories of God, it's not defined by necessarily the degree to which we're feeling it. If we're wavering or if we're weak concerning our confidence in God, we are tempted, right, to conclude that there is no confidence, <laughs> at least no saving confidence. We think, well, you know, if, if Abraham never wavered, except he wavered a lot, um, if, if, if he never wavered, but I waver a lot, then I got a serious problem. But you see, the substance of the faith that is instrumental in restoring a right relationship with God is not defined according to the intensity of our desire for God at any given moment, the measure of the affection, that's going to rise and fall. It's going to come under assault, fiery darts, circumstances that just weaken our confidence in God. No, the, the measure or the degree is not what defines faith. The nature of faith is being fully convinced that God is able and will actually do precisely what he has promised to do. The nature of faith is not about degree, it's about the object. Do you believe that God is able and will actually do what he has promised to do? Yes. But help me in my unbelief. <laughs> the nature of faith is knowing that God is able to do what He has promised to do. The nature of faith is being convinced that He will do precisely what He has promised to do at the right time. But what is it then that God has promised to do? Because you see, the nature of or substance of faith, is so closely tied to the object of faith. So, what is the object of faith? And the object of faith is very specific, 
very specific. Look at verse 21 again. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the focal point of saving, justifying, God-glorifying faith is not vague. It's not just have a little faith. It's not think positive thoughts. It's not just believe. That's when we run into trouble. We find ourselves in a situation that, that looks hopeless and Just having a little faith gets us nowhere. The focal point of saving, God-glorifying faith has nothing to do with positive thinking. Friends, saving, God-glorifying faith is not even believing that God is able. Listen, the, the issue has to do with being fully convinced that God is able to do what? It's being fully convinced that God is able to do whatever it is we want Him to do. Being fully convinced that God is able to do whatever we think He should do. No, the kind of faith of which Paul is speaking is much more specific than that. The faith that justifies, the faith that honors God is faith that is fully convinced that God will do The very things he has promised he will do. And so, what promise did God make to Abraham? Verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So that's part of it. That Abraham and his offspring, he he would be heir of the world. Talk about what that means. But look at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring will be the father of many nations. God made a specific promise to Abraham. God promised that Abraham by his own offspring would become the father of many nations. God promised to Abraham that his offspring would become the father of many nations. And notice, God God did not promise that Abraham would simply be the father of one great, big, honking, huge nation. That, That would have been remarkable in and of itself since God also made this promise to Abraham in his old age. Uh, The point of verse 19 is, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You see, God specifically promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, and it would happen through the offspring born to 
Abraham and his wife. And the fulfillment of this promise, it would be a miracle. It would be a miracle, one, because Abraham and Sarah's biological clocks had stopped ticking. You know, he wasn't dead, but he, you know, as far as reproductive health, he was as good as dead. It is simply, this is just, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> you know, there just, there comes a time when things no longer work. And uh, both Abraham and Sarah were at that point in time. They were past their expiration date. But it was also a miracle since, secondly, Sarah had been barren her entire life. And there are women who experience that indescribable pain that attends the inability to conceive. And that pain, with all of its questions of why me, why can't I experience the joy of childbearing, that, those hard, hard thoughts rise against God. And those of you who have fought with those hard thoughts know that they can be and are at times directed sideways towards your man. And your battle for faith becomes his battle for faith. And together, to hope at all is to hope against hope. There just isn't any hope. But is that it? Is that, is that what God promised to Abraham that he trusted specifically and it was counted to him as righteousness? <laughs> is the faith that justified Abraham simply the full assurance that God would give offspring to him and Sarah? It does not make any sense. How is trusting God to work a miracle of conception in one's old age, the instrumental cause of forgiveness of sin? How does trusting God to miraculously overturn nature's course in one's body clock contribute to the legal verdict of counting someone as righteous? And even further, what does Abraham's full assurance that God was able to keep such a promise have to do with our justification? Isn't that what it says in verse 16? That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Verse 23, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So, Loved ones, there is another promise that God made to Abraham that brings the object of justification, saving faith into focus. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and offspring here is singular, promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring and the promise that God made was that Abraham and his offspring, offspring singular, would be heir of the world. 
God promised Abraham that one of his own descendants and offspring through the line of Abraham and Sarah would be the heir of the world. God promised that through one of his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Who is that descendant? Who is that offspring? Abraham certainly could not have known who it was. But Abraham was fully convinced that whoever it was, God was able to keep and bring about the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham was fully convinced that God would fulfill his promise to bless him and Sarah with a miraculous conception. Abraham was fully convinced that God can and would give life to his own as good as dead body and call into existence things that do not exist. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able and would, in fact, make him the father, not of one nation, but the father of many nations. And Abraham was fully convinced that God was able and would make one of his very own descendants the heir of the world. All of it. And that's why Paul can say in verse 22, this is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. Our sake too. When we baptize as we did just a few moments ago, very intentional regarding the words of the question that we ask. Remember what, remember what we asked Matt and Leah? We didn't say, do you believe? We didn't say, do you believe in Jesus? We asked, are you trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? That's important because you know how many other things people can put their trust in because they might be trying to be a Christian. Are you sure you're not banking your hope for God's acceptance on your spiritual background? Are you sure you're not trusting in your, the faith of your family? Upbringing? Sure, you're not trusting in your own personal initiative? You sure you're not banking on your own covenant keeping or your moral attempts at being good or the measure of your feeling? As good as all those things may be, none of them, none of them, not one of them will save you. But listen, listen carefully. It's the second half of that question that is as important. Are you trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? And here it is. Are you trusting Christ alone for the fulfillment of every promise God has made to you, including the promise of eternal life? You see, saving faith is, it's not vague. God glorifying faith is not nebulous. 
the object of saving, justifying, God-honoring faith is full assurance that God is able and will do. Will do. Nothing more, nothing less than precisely what he has promised to do in this book. So did God promise to give you that job? Did God promise to give you an A? Did God promise that you'd win the game? Did God promise to heal you? Did God promise a problem-free life? Did God promise to save that specific son or daughter? You know, if God has not promised it here, then it doesn't matter how much faith you can muster. What matters is knowing the specific things that God has promised. And He has promised a lot. And you can know the specific things God has promised because He's made them known in this book. And whatever it is, he has specifically promised to his people who are joined to Christ by faith. He is able and he will do to the praise of his wisdom, to the praise of his power, to the praise of his purposeful sovereignty, to the purpose of his goodness, to the purpose of his love, to the praise of his love. God's people that is, those who, whom he counts as righteous, get all of God, and they get all that he has promised to be. And God gets all the glory. Now, how can you be sure? How, how can we know that? How can we be certain of that? I mean, verse 16 says that the promise is guaranteed. To all Abraham's offspring. What is the basis for such a guarantee, for such assurance that God will keep every promise he has made to all his people? Well, Paul answers this question in verses 23 through 25. Listen carefully. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How can we be certain? How can we be so sure, fully convinced that God will, in fact, fulfill every promise that he has made to us, including the promise of being counted as righteous in Christ? According to Romans 8.11, it says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You see there, there is this union of spirit and verdict. If you are joined to Christ by faith, 
then the guarantee that he will keep every promise that God has made to you is based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. How can we be fully convinced that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead can and will also give life to our mortal bodies? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And those all things happen to be the things that God has promised. We can be fully convinced that God can and will keep every promise He has made to everyone who is united to Christ, to Him through Christ Jesus by faith because God has sworn Himself to do so through the death and the resurrection of His Son. Paul writes such in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. So, loved ones, are you trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the fulfillment of every promise that God has made to you, including the promise of being counted as righteous in Christ and possessing eternal life? And do you count Him as your Lord And resolve in reliance on the power that raised Jesus from the dead to obey his commands. I pray you are. I pray you do. And I pray you will according to the power. The power that gives life to the dead. Which is at work in those who are joined to Christ by faith. If you do, then all that God has promised is yes for you in him. To God be all the glory. Let's pray. And so, Lord, the death of Jesus is so important to us. The resurrection of Jesus is so important to us. In these are the justification of sinners and more. For to those whom you have counted as righteous in union with Christ on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. To them, every other promise that you have made and recorded in the Bible is yes. It's guaranteed yes. So we thank you on this resurrection day for all that you have done by your grace to accomplish all things for your people to your glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen.